We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Having trouble connecting to the internet. Okay, I think I just connected. So, so we're basically going back to the, the, the foundations of everything. And, and feel free to interrupt, push back, anything at all. Um, just recap a few key points from, from our, previous, uh, our previous class. One is that uh, you can trace the entirety of the Islamic tradition back to the Prophet in the Qur'an, peace be upon him. And you can trace the entirety of the Prophet in the Qur'an, peace be upon, uh, peace be upon him, back to uh, Surat al-Baqarah and Ali Imran. So Surah 2 and 3. And you can trace those back to Al-Fatiha. And you can trace Al-Fatiha back to Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And you can trace Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim back to the B. Okay. One, of, one of the beauties in terms of the way that our tradition plays out is that you do have this core. And the core is the B. If you understand the B, you understand the essence of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. If you understand Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, you understand the essence of Al-Fatiha. If you understand Al-Fatiha, you understand the essence of Al-Baqarah and Al-Imran. And if you understand Al-Baqarah and Al-Imran, you understand the essence of the Prophet, peace be upon him, in the Qur'an. And if you understand them, then you understand the essence of the whole tradition. Okay. And so what is the most key point of B? So B you translate as with or in. So with the name of Allah, in the name of Allah. So by speaking of it as with or in, we're saying one of the most essential essences of the Islamic outlook is connection. Okay. And, and so this plays out especially in acts of worship. So, so like with salah, you know, namaz, we call it salah, which means connection, right? And so, who are you trying to connect with? You're trying to connect with Allah. You're trying to connect with the Prophet, peace be upon him. That gets illustrated because we pray the way the Prophet, peace be upon him, prayed. And ask any Muslim, how did you learn how to pray? Uh, they may start with a book or a video or the internet, but how do you really learn how to pray from someone else, right? And that person learned from someone else, and that person learned from someone else, and that literally goes back 1,400 years. And it gets fascinating when you go on the Hajj, where you have, as you know, literally people from every single ethnicity, every single social economic demographic, every single education level of literacy and illiteracy, and everybody prays almost exactly the same way. There's no manual on how to pray. Okay? And that's one of the open miracles of Islam, literally right before our eyes. And this took time for me to really, really digest and appreciate how huge that is. Naturally, there are some variations that also get traced back to the Prophet, peace be upon him. What you do with your hands, what you do with your fingers, so forth and so on. And even if you look at Sunnah and Shia, uh, Sunni and Shia prayers, most of those are identical as well, right? And in fact, uh, Shia prayers, uh, much of it is very similar to the Maliki school of Sunni prayers, right? But... The point being that how did you learn from a person who learned from a person who learned from a person who learned from a person, person to person connection. Okay. So you're connecting to Allah, you're connecting to the Prophet, peace be upon him, connecting to the community, and then you're also connecting to nature because that's how we figure out what time it is to pray. I mean, now we, we have our phones, so we don't need to look to see if it's nighttime outside, right? We don't need to see if it's Isha time. And then uh, you're also connecting to yourself, right? And so we're saying one of the most core essences of the entirety of the tradition is connection. And you can make this point by its opposite as well, 
that if you think of sins or crimes, what are they effectively doing? They're breaking relationships, right? If I tell you a lie, you know, then I'm straining my relationship with you, right? If you entrust a secret to me um, and I go tell everybody, then, again, I've strained my relationship with you. If I skip prayers, okay, then I'm straining my relationship with Allah. And so think of connection as being very much at the essence of Islam and disconnection very much being the opposite of Islam. Naturally, there are things you're going to disconnect from um, um, uh, within the Islamic paradigm. Uh, and there are also things you should not connect to in, in the Islamic paradigm. But we're saying at the core of this is connection. Okay? So the primary connection is with Allah Ta'ala. And so here's a question to think about. Is it possible to have a relationship with Allah without the Qur'an? How would you guys answer that question? Is it possible? Simple question. And, and I'm saying um, um, not how would we answer in Islam. This is just what do you think? I, I think so because yeah. even like in the Qur'an... Oh, by the way, I'm recording this, but I'm not putting your names okay. on or anything. The Qur'an like straight path to Allah. Okay. But there's other paths to Allah, maybe not a straight path, okay. but in the path for Islam, okay. there was other okay. means. So then, we're, yeah, it seems like you're taking it further. Um, you're saying it's possible to have a relationship with Allah without the Quran, without the Prophet, peace be upon him, perhaps even without Islam, too. Yeah. What do you all think? Is it possible for me to have a relationship with Allah without Islam, even? Yes. Yeah. Yeah? Think so? Okay. You seem to be uh, shaking your head. No, I'm just thinking about it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, is it possible to have a relationship with Allah without religion? So without the Qur'an, without the Prophet, peace be upon him, without Islam, without religion. By religion, I'm saying essentially, you know, organized religion, right? Any of the big religions. Without me knowing any religion, without anyone teaching me any religion, is it possible? What do you mean by a relationship, then? Um, uh, what do I mean by relationship? It could include having a consciousness of God, um, maybe something more than that. Maybe a reliance on God. Maybe even more than that. I mean, aren't we using religion to further our relationship and our consciousness of God? Okay. Way? If we're using rela- uh, religion to further, then are you saying that yet it is possible to have at least a relationship? I'm saying that you would need religion, in my opinion, okay. to uh, have a relationship with God. Okay, so define what you mean by religion. Um, I mean, as Kazi was saying, uh, oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that other person over there. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Point, point being that uh, with like the like religion gives us a set of rules and kind of pathways to follow to kind of to connect to God, right? Okay. Um, and so, how could you establish a relationship with God when you're not following the? pathways laid out by God for okay. you to follow. Um, okay, yeah. so then what I'm asking, so your, your, your point is, is very valid. What I'm asking is, 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 is it possible for me without knowing any of those pathways or rules? I would believe you could somewhat reason it out. Okay. I, okay. I mean, I'm also a student of philosophy, so... Okay, nice, Marshall. <laughs> Engineering and philosophy, you are truly busy. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm a philosopher. people in philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm talking about that Uncle General. I mean, I should know. I say they're not trained in philosophy. They're all yeah, yeah, philosophers so, and political scientists too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so I, I believe it is possible to reason that there is indeed a creator. Okay. Because um, you know, it's like I guess the watch. 
I mean, a lot of things they call a watchmaker in yeah, a yeah. sense. Like someone had to design us, like we're so fit, more sophisticated than a watch. Okay. So someone had to possibly design us. But of course, there's also the argument that, you know, everything just happened. But, okay, okay. But I, I do believe people come to okay. believe in God by just reasoning it out. Okay. Someone had, someone had to create Okay. This. So let's open up to Surah 7. And go to Ayah 172. So Surah 7, Surah Al-A'raf, and 172, 173. Is that the Halim translation? Uh, yeah. Okay, okay, cool. Okay. And then do you have one, to, or maybe you guys can share or something? Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. So, do you also want to share? <laughs> okay. So 172, uh, when your Lord, when your Rabb, uh, took from the children of Adam, uh, from their their backs or from their loins, their descendants, and made them testify. Uh, and he said, "Am I not your Lord?" And they said, "Yes, we bear witness." And then it says, "This is so that you can't say on the day, on the day of judgment that we were not aware." Okay. So one answer to this question from within our tradition is that there was this event in pre-eternity where all of us were rounded up before Allah, and Allah said to all of us, am I not your Lord? And we all said, yes, you are. Okay. And then what's then interpreted from that is that at some level, all of us, meaning all of humanity, is hardwired to have a connection with Allah Ta'ala. Like that is our natural disposition. Okay. Now... Now, then what happens from there is that, okay, well, how do we explain all these people around us who don't really have a conception of God? That it's possible either that this can get corrupted or it can get buried. Okay. And this leads to theological opinions uh, in the different schools of theology. Some say that because you are hardwired, uh, then if no one had ever introduced God to you, you were still held to account. Because innately you have it. Others say, even though you are hardwired, okay, because it can get so buried and corrupted, you may need someone to actually call you and invite you. Okay. Otherwise, why would we need messengers? Why do we need prophets? Peace be upon them. Okay. Uh, but now, let's go from there to Surah 31, Surah Luqman, Ayah 12 to 19. So Luqman has an interesting story. There's two interpretations of him. One interpretation is that he was a prophet. Okay. Uh, or I should say three interpretations. Another interpretation is that he had a whole lot of interaction with prophets. Okay. Maybe interaction with multiple prophets. And another interpretation, which is actually the first one that I was taught, is that he never had any interaction with believers in any capacity. Okay. So, and there's also a, a side interesting interpretation. So Luqman is famous in our tradition. They call him uh, Luqman al-Hakim. So there's all kinds of proverbs associated with him, wise teachings associated with him. And so some people suggest that Luqman is the same as Aesop. Okay. And so if you think of Aesop, how do we, what culture or civilization do we know Aesop through? The Greeks. Okay. Now, what is across the street from... From, or across the street, across the Mediterranean from Greece, Africa, right? 
And so there's a suggestion that Aesop is actually Ethiop. Because okay? Luqman is an African. Okay? It's a cool idea. Does it have any, any strength to it? Who knows? But it's a cool idea. So this is a passage, Surah 31, Ayahs 12 through 19, of the conversation that Luqman has with his son when Luqman is on his deathbed. Okay. Now think about it if you are on your deathbed. Are your, are your parents all still alive? Yeah. Yeah, hey, mashallah. Think about this uh, when you yourself are on your deathbed and you have the privilege of actually having time, not like dying in a car accident or something, and your family is surrounding you, what would you say to your children? Okay, think about that. So this is what Luqman is saying to his children, for his son. So Ayah 12 so we gave Luqman, we as Allah, we gave Luqman wisdom. Okay, and what is the wisdom, what did the wisdom lead him to? Gratitude of Allah. And make a mental note of that point. Okay. Whoever is grateful to Allah, it is, it is uh, grateful to the benefit of his own self. Whoever rejects Allah, indeed Allah is free of need, praiseworthy. And so now on a side point, we also have some, some, some uh, cons- relationships between concepts. Uh, Gratitude is also, as we're going to see, one of the essences of Islam. Okay? And in one way, the opposite of gratitude to Allah is rejection of Allah. So kufr, we're going to define it in more detail much later on. But at one level, the opposite of gratitude is rejection. Shukr is an opposite of kufr. So if you, if you are grateful to Allah, it's going to be to your benefit. If you reject Allah, Allah is, 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 is uh full of praise and wealth, he's not losing anything by your rejection. This is also an important point because sometimes you will find people who will choose the path of atheism and when you dig deep into their psychology, they're doing it as a way to get back at Allah, right? That the best way I know to, to get back at Allah, to, do, to have revenge on Allah for whatever happens in my life is to tell Allah that he doesn't exist. You'll find some people who do that, right? And, and it's saying here, okay, Allah's not losing anything. By you doing that. He's not being hurt by you doing that. Next ayah. And then when Luqman said to his son, okay, while he was instructing him on his deathbed, Ya Bunaya, la tushrik billah. So, oh my little son, do not do shirk, do not partner anything with Allah. Okay? Now remember, we're defining, we're describing Luqman as someone who has no connection potentially with believers. Okay? He had inspiration from Allah, not as a prophet. Meaning, perhaps in the way you and I might have inspiration that might be coming from Allah. This is not revelation. We might call it insights. Okay. And so the first thing he tells his son is, don't make partners to God. Okay. So he has a relationship with Allah. And then he even says, indeed, making partners to God is a horrendous uh, wrong. Okay. A horrendous type of oppression. Next aisle. Side point that, you know, parents love to quote, okay, and we have enjoyed upon people to care for your parents, your mother carried you, weakness upon weakness, weaning is two years, be grateful to me and to your parents, and to me is the final destination, okay, yeah, they see parents especially love to, to quote this ayah, either directly or indirectly, you know, be good to your parents, uh, but this is a side point, this is not actually part of the conversation. Uh, but then the point continues, if they try to make you associate with me anything of which you have no knowledge, don't obey them, but still be nice to them. Okay, whoever turns back uh, and follow the way of those who uh, do not turn their back on me, except, uh, or, or who turn back to me in repentance, uh, 
you will return to me. Back to Luqman. Now he says, indeed, if any wrong should happen, the weight of a mustard seed. So that would be their metaphor for an atom or a quark or something smaller. You know, um, what's smaller than a quark? Is, it, is that just the realm of energy? You like that's not my field. <laughs> okay. So, so this was uh, the mustard seed metaphorically commonly in the Quran as well as in the Bible was sort of like the, the metaphor for the smallest possible thing. So if there's something as small as a mustard seed hidden within a rock or anywhere in the heavens and the earth, Allah will bring it forth. Okay. Uh, so what is Luqman speaking about? When is he going to bring it forth? Like if there's any wrong done hidden in any capacity... Yeah, so Luqman is also telling his son about the Day of Judgment. Okay. Meaning he has intuitively figured out God. Not, I mean, you know, what is God, but that there is God. And he's also figured out the Day of Judgment. Next ayah. Okay. Oh, my little son, establish Salah. Okay. Now his Salah is probably not the same as ours because he's pre-Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, so it's pre-Arabic. It may have had all the same positions, or it may have just been prostration. But he's even figured this out. Call to what is right, forbid what is wrong. So this is your community behavior. We can call this justice. We can call this upright conduct. He's even figured that out. And persevere through whatever hits you. He has even figured out sabr. Okay. And, and so perseverance is something that requires a lot of, in our language, fortitude. And then ayah 18 do not turn in contempt toward people. Okay? And don't walk around boastfully. Allah does not love these self-deluded boasters. So he's even figured out humility. And, I 19, and be moderate in the way you walk or in the way you conduct yourself in, in your voice because the most disagreeable sound is the sound, is the braying of the donkey. Okay? So, at one level, ayah 12 to 19 gives us a complete summary of Islam. And we're saying Luqman Islam figured out all of this by himself. So we're saying at one level, each person is hardwired to have a relationship with Allah. That is your natural disposition. And we're saying on top of that, you can intuitively figure out all of this stuff. So is it possible to have a relationship with Allah, a healthy, full relationship with Allah, without the Qur'an? Yes. Without the Prophet, peace be upon him? Yes. Without Islam? Yes. Without religion? Yes. But if that's the case, then why do we have the Qur'an and the Prophet? How would you answer that? If I can figure all this stuff out on my own, then why do we need the Qur'an and the Prophet, peace be upon him? So as reminders, or even more simpler than that, to make sure we do have an appropriate relationship. I mean, uh, Luqman is an exception in Islamic history. Because I might believe in a creator and then determine that the creator is this tree in my backyard. Right? I might believe that uh, in something like a pantheism where everything is God. Right? So the purpose of the Quran, the Prophet, peace upon him, is to make sure we do have a proper relationship with Allah, which then by definition becomes uh, proper and healthy conduct and, and then proper and healthy ways of interacting with everyone, with connecting with everyone. 
So now if we look at the rest of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, <coughs> it begins with, with the name of Allah. So what is the first way for me to then have a relationship with Allah? It's by getting to know his names, right? Because that's how I get to know who he is. Because his names are the same as his attributes. So the first way of getting to know Allah, the first way of connecting to Allah, the first way of having a relationship with Allah, is to get to know who or what Allah is. And so the first thing we learn about Allah is the name Allah itself. So the name Allah itself is considered to be, it's called like Allah al-Jalala. So the most majestic utterance. Meaning there is nothing I can say with my tongue <coughs> that is more majestic than the name Allah. And this is fascinating because if you contrast this with Judaism, in Judaism, the name of God is so sacred that you can't say it, right? So instead, you will find many Jews who will refer to what they call the tetragrammaton, which is the, 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 the words that spell the name of God, or they'll say something like Hashem. Ha is Al in Arabic. Shem is Ism, so the name. So you will often refer to, to, to devout Jews not using the name God, but they will say Hashem, and the, which basically means the name, not to be confused with the name Hashem. Because that's what I kept uh, kept hearing. I, you know, what's also interesting is you know a lot of guys who are named Hashem, they'll uh, their their white people version is Hashem, and then every time they say that, I just start cracking up like, oh, you're saying you're God. Okay. In any case, so 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 the name Allah itself is the most sacred thing or sacred utterance that I can possibly say with my tongue. But in our tradition, you are encouraged to say it as much as possible. So we're saying in, in textbook devout Judaism, uh, only a few people are allowed to say it at particular times, but otherwise, no, you're not even supposed to say it. It's that sacred. And that's also kind of a statement on human nature, that we are saying that by virtue of the fact that I should say the name of Allah, uh, either we can say it's a gift that Allah is giving us as a technique of purification, uh, or that there is some innate purity that I have. Now, what else <coughs> about, about the name Allah? Uh, there's different theories. One is that the name Allah has always been around. That's one theory. Perhaps preceding Arabic itself. Allah knows best. Uh, the, name, uh, the name of the divine in at least the Semitic languages is, is very similar. Elo or Allah. And I'm not saying this as scholars of each of these. These are just things that I've read in articles about all this. Um, uh, another theory is that it is a contraction of Al-Ilah. So like we say, la ilaha illallah, al-ilah. And so I want to focus on that, and that's probably where, where we'll stop today uh, after that. So, <clears throat> so when we, how do we usually translate the word ilah into English? There's no God. Or the word ilah itself would be God, oh, yeah, yeah. lowercase g. Yeah. And so I'm going to give you some definitions of the word ilah. Not necessarily in any order, but different ways that word is actually translated. Your ilah is whatever it is you take in your core or whatever it is you rely upon in your core to fulfill a number of or any of the following innate needs. One is to take you from danger into safety. So whatever it is you rely upon above all else to keep you out of danger, to keep you in safety, or to take you from danger into safety. So to, to put that as an example, suppose you are going to go on... Um, 
uh, a trip to a different country, okay, what would you take with you related to safety? So you got to fly. Sorry? Probably going to take your phone. What else are you going to take? Charger. Probably So your phone charger to make your phone is charged. Yeah. What else? Passport. Probably take your passport. Yeah. In relation to safety, you said? Yeah, I mean, uh, things to, to, to help play it safe, right? Oh, uh, like your credit card. You'll probably take, you know, some sort of credit card or some sort of uh, money. Anything else? I think those are probably the main things. If you're going to go someplace cold, you'll probably bring a coat. Okay. So then let's say uh, your plane crashes, you're the only survivor, okay, and the plane burns up, there's nothing there left, right? Uh, but you still have your phone, your passport, and your credit card. Okay. But you're in the middle of a forest. So... You're using your cell phone, but you can't really get a signal, and soon the cell phone battery dies. Okay. There's no credit card machines in the forest, so that's not really going to help you. Um, and your passport's not going to help you at all. Then what do you do? Then what do you rely upon? So then you're going to rely upon your instinct, your, your, your intellect. Maybe you're going to, at night you're going to look at the stars to try to get a sense of where everything is. Maybe, maybe walk in a particular direction so that you're hopefully not walking in circles. Kidding. But then that doesn't help you in terms of the daytime. And for all you know, you might be walking in circles. Then what do you do? And that's where you begin to discover what your ilah is, where you lose everything else. So do you fall into despair and just give up? Um, or do you just hope and pray, Ya Allah, take care of me? Okay. So, one definition of what your ilah is, is what you're relying upon in your core to take you from danger into safety, to keep you out of danger, to keep you in safety. Another is what you rely upon to take you from despair into hope. And so think in our society, a lot of people turn to, for example, alcohol to take them out of despair, Right? And alcohol can give you some intoxication, making you forget your despair. But once it all wears out, your despair comes back. Okay. Um, and so uh, narcotics are, are, are really, really big in our society. There's a huge, huge, huge heroin epidemic in the Rust Belt that no one ever talks about. Like, you know, there's, there's often this, this depiction of, you know, the Rust Belt of being all these people with upright families and, and hard-going churchgoers. I just read through this book called I went through this book called uh, Hillbilly Elegy. Really cool book. And um, it's this guy who grew up in Appalachia. And he's talking about his life. He eventually uh, went into the Marines, and then he went to Yale and everything. Uh, <clears throat> but he says basically, like, okay, uh, people in the Rust Belt don't go to church any more than people in San Francisco, except there's a lot of shame in admitting it. So they all say that they do, Right. And there's massive family dysfunction and a whole lot of uh, narcotics consumption, especially alcohol and heroin. Right. But in any case, so the point is that people might turn to those things to take them out of despair. Right. Or, you know, like, what do they call it? Uh, comfort food. Right. Cheesecake. Uh, uh, so whatever it is you rely upon above, uh, above all else to take you from despair into hope is what you take as an ilah. Whatever it is you rely upon to take you from confusion into clarity. So we might rely upon our intellect 
to take us from con- out of confusion, especially, you know, you know I'm, I'm the king of Facebook, especially in cracking nonsensical jokes, but <coughs> the point is that on, on, you know, when you're watching your feed all day long, why wouldn't you lose your mind, right? The disaster porn that's t- that takes place, you know, people pontificating, uh, or add to that, you know, when you're driving around or walking around, think of how much you get bombarded with marketing and advertisements. I was, I was in Egypt for a very short period of time, and with my friends who were there, we, what we noticed was we were all feeling strangely calm, like in a very, very strange way. And then uh, reflecting on it, we realized we were not getting bombarded with, with advertisements or billboards or anything. Like, every time you see something, you're giving it an atten- a piece of attention for a split second. And think about how many, you know, how many of moments of attention you give to all the things in your Facebook feed, your, your social media feed, or all the advertisements around you. Even watch this as you walk from this room to your next location. Um, and a university campus, you're not going to see as much, but you're still going to see a lot of signs all over the place. And each time you're giving attention to it. That creates clutter in your mind which can eventually lead to confusion. So usually we rely upon our intellect to take us from confusion into clarity, but in this era of alternative facts and fake news, that gets even harder. You guys heard about this Bowling Green massacre, right? So, so Kelly Conway, the spokesperson for, for, for the, the White House, she said literally that we have to have this ban. Uh, and an ex- because an example of that is there's these Iraqi refugees who conducted a massacre at Bowling Green. Okay? Never happened. She literally made this up. Okay. And so who knows what this next realm of, of media is going to be where we just get bombarded with stuff that's just completely fraudulent. Because right. there are already a lot of people, as you know, in our society that, that believe these stories. So whomever it is, whatever it is you rely upon for con- uh, confusion, uh, take you from confusion to clarity. The fourth definition is whatever it is you rely upon for comfort above all else. You know, more than your pillow, like think of the tranquility you have or do not have in your heart. One of the teachings we have in the Quran is that in the remembrance of God, a heart finds ease. Right? And I'm saying this from experience. You know, all the insanity that is around us long before now, I mean, things were still kind of wild, not as crazy as they are now, but um, the more you spend time and reflecting upon God, the more peace of mind it actually gives you. Right? Not if you look at God as someone out to punish you. Okay, that, that issue we'll get into probably next time, inshallah. But uh, the point is that, you know, what do you rely upon for comfort? Okay. And the last would be, what do you rely upon for worship? Okay. And how would you define worship? What do, you mean, what do we mean by worship? What does it mean to worship something? What do you think? Praise. So praise is part of it, yeah. What else? Recognize that it's higher than yourself. Yeah, yeah. What else? To seek comfort in it? Yeah, all these things, right. Now, the word for worship is ibadah, which actually means to give your most extreme love. Okay. That's what ibadah actually means. And so, to whom or whatever it is you give your most extreme love is what you take as an ilah. So, think of it as levels. One level would just be general love, that we call hub. Another level deeper than that would be ishq, which is like passionate love, adoration. And the deeper level than that is worship. So when you love someone, when you love your beloved, you know, you want to be in the company of your beloved, you hope they love you back, you'll value them, you'll value what they value, 
You might change yourself to be like what they want. All these things are part of love. You love it when they're near, you feel joy when they're near, you feel pain when they're far, all those things. Deeper than that, and then you see beauty. You don't see, you don't see flaws. When you adore your beloved, now you're putting your beloved on a pedestal. All you can conceive of coming from your beloved is perfection. Okay? You can't even conceive of anything else. You're just in awe. Deeper than that is worship, where you completely surrender. Complete, voluntary, loving surrender. In this outlook, everybody surrenders to something. So, in a way, there's no such thing as an atheist, except in the sense that an atheist would be someone who doesn't believe that there is a law, but an atheist also surrenders to something. Everyone surrenders to something, whether or not they realize it. So, an ilah is whatever it is you surrender to. So, when we say, la ilaha illallah, when we're saying there's no ilah but Allah, we're saying anything you turn to other than Allah uh, to fulfill these core needs, turn away from. And more than that, anything you turn to other than Allah to fulfill these core needs can't actually truly fulfill it for you anyway. Right? So now, uh, putting everything together, we're saying it's all about connection, and the first connection is to Allah and the first way to do that is to get to know his attributes and names, and the first name and attribute to know is Allah. Okay. Any questions or thoughts? So a lot of this, when we go through Al-Fatiha, has more laying out foundations. We'll get far, far, far more discussion-oriented as, as we've laid out the foundation. Otherwise, okay, cool. We'll stop off here. So in two sessions, we've now made it to Bismillah, and then we still haven't finished Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Alright, subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka natubi ilayk. Wa akhiri da'wana. And alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Okay, may Allah tell you all.